Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast from the Zion Art Society and presented by me, Eric Bigert. Today's episode is a bit of an unusual episode. We're going to share a recording we did of an event that was held uh, a couple weeks ago uh, during the Certain Women exhibition, which we have been co-sponsoring for the last couple months and will be at Heirloom Art and Company in Provo through the first week of May. Uh, This discussion uh, was organized by the show's organizers um, and features Rita Wright, who's the director of the Springville Museum, Nyland McBain, who's the founder of the Mormon Women's Project, and Heather Belknap, uh, who's an art history professor at BYU and is one of the leading experts on women in art, LDS women in art. Uh, They have this discussion for about an hour and open it up to some questions. It was in front of a live audience, so the sound quality is not ideal, but there's a video of the event on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Zion Art Society, where you can watch um, the video of the same discussion, but we wanted to put it into a podcast form also for you all to enjoy. Um, And uh, we also want to remind you to go see the Certain Women Show if you haven't yet. Uh, heirloom art in Provo um, through May 6th. Uh, it's it's excellent. We're thrilled with how well it's gone. Um, several pieces out of the show have sold. Um, and personally, I'm a little bit jealous because I've wanted a lot of them in my house and other people have been, have been buying them. So take this as an opportunity um, to support uh, art, to support artists, to find ways to beautify to uplift through the visual arts in your own home. Um, it's our hope that everybody will, will take the time to really appreciate the talent that is around us and to embrace it in their own personal worship and their own teachings with their families and their homes. Uh, so enjoy the show, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. It was, it was wonderful to have them all there, um, and it's been wonderful to host this show. Thanks. When we were in school making art, trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And so we are just thrilled that this show was able to come together and that we can have this this discussion. And so I'll pass the time over and we'll start with Rita. Okay, and I think it's what we've talked about doing. We're each gonna introduce ourselves and a little bit of how we came to this because I had an opportunity to talk with you, was it over a year ago? about doing this exhibition at the Springville Museum of Art where I'm the director, and we did not have the place at that time in the schedule to have them do it. So I was so thrilled to hear that you were going to be able to do it here at Anthony's. But my background is uh, pretty much for 25 years, I was home. I was home with children. I had gotten an undergraduate degree in theater and then came back to the school where Heather and I, and actually Zion Art Foundation or Zion Art Society, um, Tamara Woods was one of our our colleagues cohort in that cohort. And since that time, I went through academia and the BYU Museum of Art, the Church History, the LDS Church History Museum of Art, working much more with dead artists than living artists. When I went to the Springville Museum of Art my energies and my quick learning curve came with working with living artists. And so as this group came to me and presented this thesis, which I want you to start thinking about, and as Heather and Nylan talk about how we are now seeing reflections of this, they presented this to us. Our hope in creating this exhibit is to showcase the diverse artistry of our collective and highlight our unique perspectives as women of faith. We believe that our voices are stronger together than they are apart. We seek to add dimension to persuasive, pervasive stereotypes by offering our own first-person narratives. At times, LDS women are portrayed as naive or subservient, but nothing could be further from the truth. We are women of vision who act deliberately. We are thoughtful, strong, and certain. And that has definitely been my experience with these women. And as they create and enter some of our competitions and shows, working with them at different museums, these are incredibly thoughtful and highly productive women. I was cleaning up from a flood last weekend and got a box of books of some of my youthful 70s literature about women and the role of women. I was too late 
to get the art of homemaking by Darl Hool, but the joys of homemaking, we were just talking, I found notes in here, was a standard for me. It was how to have an organized home, free of clutter, which oftentimes we find is uh, the antithesis or not, the, but the opposite of creative experience. But my children were very rarely allowed to do the pudding hand painting because I couldn't get it cleaned up before bedtime. So it was a really interesting exploration to look at some of these things bloomed where you're planted the most important work you will ever do will be within the walls of your home own home that was from president harold b lee who was um, the president of the church when i was a young woman the other one the fascinating girl and the joy of womanhood or the joy of being a woman and some of these things that were presented at that time the ideas about creativity this line here Creativity on the part of a woman calls for flexibility in her thinking. The highly creative woman allows her thoughts to mill about freely. That was a pretty revolutionary thing in the 70s and that I was introduced to some of those ideas, albeit in a very narrow perspective. But this is the one that I think um, led me to reflect over the weekend. The introduction to the fascinating girl, again the follow-up to fascinating womanhood, which was very highly recommended at the time and was widely read. The Secrets of Winning Men is the introduction. This is the introductory statement. We have all known women who have that certain charm which attracts men. Men flock around them like bees do honey, competing with one another for attention. These adorables seem to cast a spell upon almost every man they meet, while other girls who seem just as admirable and attractive go unnoticed and unappreciated what is this magical element of charm that wins the attention of men? And I think that paragraph is one of the biggest suggestions that I have, that women are being respected for what they're contributing in the art world. As I see them coming into the museum, as I see them entering their works, they are extremely impressive, both in the product that they create, the artworks, the objects, and as well as how they approach being artists that they look at it as very professional, that many of them choose to combine their time at home with families and their career as artists. And I think that is one of the most significant changes I've seen in the 50 years since these books came out. There was attention to being creative, there was a statement of how important it was, but that broader aspect of being able to share these creations with those around you and to actually look at being businesswomen which most of the artists in this gallery are because they are taking it that seriously. So that's a little bit of my background. I'm gonna ask Heather and Nyland to each kind of tell how they arrived at this place in their scholarship and study. Okay, um, my name's Heather Belknap and I'm a professor of art history at BYU. And um, I guess I came to considering women in art pretty early in my in my career, wrote my, wrote my dissertation on women art critics in revolutionary France and um, have been committed to kind of raising awareness of women, not just as artists, but as patrons and as critics and as spectators. And um, so, you know, the, the courses that I teach have always had women artists in them. Um, about 10 years ago, I was able to develop a women in art class um, that um, I teach once a year that um, is my favorite class to teach. Um, and uh, and my, although my focus has mostly been, uh, until maybe the last, I don't know, five or six years, on 19th century European women artists, right, and some 20th, I have felt the call, right? I mean, it's been the last five or six years to return to really thinking about women artists in, um, in the LDS church. And I, as an undergraduate, I'd had a course on Utah history from Martha Bradley, who now teaches at BU. And uh, I was inspired by an article I read about uh, Mary Teasdale. And she'd written, um, Martha had written an article called Mary Teasdale, Another Artist in Paris, or something like that, right? And I was just fascinated by this because I loved Paris and this idea of this Mormon woman um, late 19th, early 20th century, going to Paris just seemed very exciting to me. Uh, and I wrote a paper on it, but it was hard to find resources. And 
then I decided, well, you know, maybe that wouldn't be the best thing to um, hang my hat on in terms of a career, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I retreated back to 19th century French material. Because I said, I, I started gathering material along the way. I had this folder on Mormon women artists that I would gather things. And for a long time, I would tell people, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to write like a, a young adult um, story about this Mormon young woman in Paris, like negotiating Bohemian Paris, right? And it's going to inspire the next generation to do this. But um, as an academic, it's pretty difficult to make novel writing happen unless you're in creative writing. So that was something I was going to do in my retirement along with my family history and all the other things, right? Um, and but the fo the folder kept getting bigger and bigger, and and uh, I, I just like I said felt compelled to return to the material that also coincided with me receiving tenure at BYU, where you're a little bit freer to do what you want to do, right? Sort of ironically, now I can turn back to studying Mormon women artists at BYU, um, and so uh, I've been working on a book project uh, that is tentatively titled uh, Artistic Frontiers: Mormon Women. At Home and Abroad, 1880-1940, that um, considers the women artists who here in Utah go back east and then go to Europe to train in those, in those periods. Um, and it's an untold story. And it's a really important story um, on many levels. And the thesis of the book um, is, well, there's several, but I mean, I think one that's very important for us to, to acknowledge is that the Utah art scene was formed by women. I mean, institutionally, the Utah Arts Institute formed, it was, was um, created by Alice Merrill Horn. Uh, they, uh, all of the Utah State clubs and organizations uh, were, were, were um, formed by women, right? And um, in part because they had maybe the time to do that, right? Um, and, and some of these, these women you know, had, had different sorts of um, familial obligations that enabled them to do this, but it's, it's um, under-acknowledged. So, um, and, and one of the things I think is so important is, I'm an, I'm a historian, right, is knowing your history. And uh, to look back and see these women who were artists, they were teaching, they were doing art shows in elementary schools and basically anywhere they could, right, for the, the homemaking meeting. They were uh, lobbying Congress. They were attending the International Congress in um, Berlin for women. And they saw their spheres of influence as, um, you know, much more expansive than um, I think we did for a lot of the second half of the 20th century, right, where our purview was, it was um, to be more focused on the home. And so um, as I've recovered this information and shared it with my students, uh, it's been um, a thrill to see kind of our, our heritage, right? And um, the ways that women have combined family. And I mentioned women doing all of these with their five or six children, serving on the Relief Society General Board, right? And I mean, they're women who, who were really committed to um, felt called, right, to this work to create and to create and share with the values that they had and the vision that they had. And um, so, so I continue to work on the project. So I wrote a thought piece that's around the corner that gives a little bit of an intimation of some of the women that were working on that. And I brought this along. I promise this is, I'm not trying to promote this, although it's <laughs> being videoed, right? So this is a, a collection um, of essays that came out of the Church History Symposium I want to say it's in 2016, but maybe it was 2015, and the, the years blur, um, that was uh, called Mormon Women's History Beyond Biography, and I gave one of the, the, um, the talks there. Um, and I have an essay in here, right, that uh, I may refer to as we kind of go back for some, for some of the quotes, but I'm going to thumb, thumb through it, uh, called Aesthetic Evangelism, Artistic Sisterhood, and the Gospel of Beauty, Mormon Women Artists at Home and Abroad, 1890 to 1920, where this generation of women really felt called to um, create art, to teach art, to um, bring art into every aspect of um, the home, church, the community, the state. Uh, and so on, and you can see this if you go and you type in artist or 
um, art. In the Young Women's Journal, in the Exponent, in the Relief Society magazine, you'll find hundreds, even thousands of hits. Right? They were reading about the latest artists in Paris. They were reading about the importance of bringing beauty um, into the world. It's really inspiring. So that's kind of my, my position. Um, and it's been really gratifying too. I just want to mention, I think about half of the, the works here are done by students who have passed through one of my classes at some point, right? As students at BYU taking the survey or, or the modern art class. And I have a student, a master's thesis student in, in, the, in the audience. So it's been, um, it's really gratifying to see the contemporary artists are catching that vision and continuing that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it's wonderful to get to know both of you better. Um, my, I'm Nylan McBain, and I think I'm here for three reasons. Um, I am not in the um, visual arts industry or profession, um, but I was raised in the performing arts uh, pr profession. My, my mother was an opera singer at the Metropolitan Opera for almost 20 years. And um, so I was raised in New York City and as her daughter and also as a, as a pianist. And in the, in the New York wards in the, in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a lot of conversation about what makes good Mormon art and can Mormons good, make good art. Um, and, uh, and so conversations around those topics were, were pretty uh, normal in our, in our home and in our wards. Uh, and, there, and so I thought a lot about, you know, can Mormons make good art, and why, why, um, why do more, not more Mormons make good art, and what about the Mormons who are making great art, and why don't we know more about it um, over the years? So I think there's a personal connection that that experience is growing up um, in 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 that situation gave me opportunities to to think deeply and to write deeply about those things. I I was my mom's ghostwriter starting around the age of twelve because. <laughs> Opera singers don't necessarily write as well as they sing, um, and I remember I remember specifically one time I was in high school and we were invited to uh, participate in the opening of Tuacon down in southern um, Utah, and my mom was singing. I was accompanying for her, but then I was also I I was I was really only just a sophomore or junior in, in high school, but I was asked to be on a panel sort of similar to this um, about the arts in the church and. Um, I remember getting very distraught because, you know, here's this like New York art, art kid coming to Southern Utah and, um, and also some member of the, of the audience challenged me by saying that, um, that, um, you know, that, that Mo there was no way that anything that Mozart wrote was of any worth because he didn't have the spirit. He was such a bad person. And I just remember kind of being like, where have I landed, you know? Um, and, and I share that because I do think, you know, as I've watched this conversation over the past 30 years, like, it has dramatically changed. Like, the, our, our conversation in the church um, about where you find beauty and, and the goodness of seeking beauty everywhere um, has really changed over the past few decades. And I think that that's wonderfully inspiring uh, and, 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 and voting very well for, for the future. Um, you have examples like, you know, President Hinckley really going back to Joseph Smith's quotes about saying that we, we should search for beauty wherever we can find it. Take, bring your truths and we will add to it, you know, and, and, and there's beauty in, in um, all sorts of different traditions. And I think President Hinckley also set an example. My mom, for instance, sang at his 90th birthday party, which I, I think was in the, in the 90s. Um, and he brought in all of the you know, wonderful performing artists across the church and, and sort of celebrated them and said, you know, this is what we're proud of as a, as a people. So I think that that's, that's uh, changed for the, for the good. Um, I think I'm also here because um, about 10 years ago, I started a nonprofit organization called the Mormon Women Project. Uh, and over the past 10 years, um, under my leadership and under a new editor now, we've interviewed uh, almost 500 LDS women from around the world, from 22 different countries. And we started categorizing them at some point early on, and one of our, our significant categories is, um, is artists, so female artists, more LDS women artists, um, and some of, some of the women in this room we've interviewed over the years. And through that process, I had people that were doing many of those interviews, people that were interested in, in LDS uh, women artists, but you know, I, I read every one of them and I did some, many of them myself. And so I think um, it was, it's the, the, the theme of the Mormon Women Project essentially 
uh, well, our, our, our tagline was showing the many ways to choose the right. And I think one of, the, one of my mission statements in creating the Mormon Women Project was to show a both and model rather than an either or model. And I think that, that that's what, um, what Heather was just getting to as well, that, that this attitude of I need to be um, a good wife and mother or I need to do something that's, you know, self-indulgent, money-making, you know, mercurial, um, takes me away from the home, right? That was kind of the paradigm that um, I think many, uh, many Mormon women in the second half of the 20th century uh, fell into and, and completely understandably and um, in many cases very, you know, um, uh, admirably. Um, in, and I, you know, I grew up with a mother who, as she tells Sorry, she died on Tuesday. Um, as she told the story, you know, like Hugh Nibley came to her senior recital at BYU in 1965 and said, Sister Bybee, you have a beautiful voice, but, you know, you, I mean, how are you going to keep this up when, you, you know, you're, you're obviously planning on getting married at some point? And she, as she told the story, she said, um, he looked at me and, and, and I and I said, well, I, I, I would say, Mom, what did you do? This is Hugh Nibley, like, BYU campus, 1965, you know, whoa, and intimidating. And she looked at me and she said, well, I ignored him, of course. You know, <laughs> like, what could be more obvious? And, 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 you know, as I've interviewed dozens of, um, sorry, it's just going to keep hitting me, isn't it? <laughs> Um, as I've interviewed dozens of artists over these years, I, I recognize that her attitude was really, really extreme um, for that period in our church's history. Uh, and I've wondered what the secret sauce was, that, that silver bullet that enabled her to just look cunably in the eye and say, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go off and do what's right for me and follow um, that, that, that personal revelation. Um, at the same time, one thing that I have noticed in my study of LDS artists, both, both in the visual arts and the performing arts, is that um, we have traditionally had a little bit of a double standard around women in, in the arts. And that's one of the reasons that I started the Mormon Women Project. I grew up um, with my mother, you know, as I mentioned, singing at President Hinckley's birthday party, doing firesides and being you know, lauded and um, included by the brethren in all sorts of very honorary um, sort of experiences. And I went along with them and it was wonderful. But as I grew older, I recognized, hey, you know, my mom wasn't married in the temple. I'm an only child. She has an international career. Like, these are not the women that we are telling the majority of Mormon women to be, right? Um, and that hypocrisy sort of prompted me to go off and, and create the Mormon Women Project to show that there are examples of, of um, this both-and model uh, that my mother, I think, exemplified so well. Um, uh, but also to, to show that um, it is possible to, uh, to, to you know, magnify your calling as, as a wife and mother if that is part of what your, your calling in life is to be. Um, and so I, I, I hope that the Mormon Women Project has really amplified that. Um, but as I mentioned, I have thought that there is that double standard has existed. I think in the, in the church, we, we talk so often about God-given talents or sort of your, your, divine, your divine nature and what you've brought to the earth with you. And I think for artists, like my mom, or, some, or less so for, for, for female um, uh, LDS artists, but, but certainly for performing artists, there's sort of this thing that you can't deny, right? If you have this just amazing voice and you're being hired to do these world-class things, um, the, that is your obviously your talent, and we and our doctrine supports not putting that under a bushel, right? So, so I think it's hard. It's, we have not traditionally had that same celebration of someone's innate talent if their innate talent, if her innate talent is in business, or if her innate talent is in medicine, right? Um, and so I think you know, even during what I, I consider to be a sort of very orthodox period of homemaking in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we still had my mom set up as a luminary. We had Charlene Wells. You know, we had sort of um, these these performing perfor these um, uh, performing arts luminaries that were were held up by the church. And and why that hasn't happened with with visual arts um, during that same period, um, I I don't know. I mean, you probably have answers for that, but I'd be really interested to know. The third reason I think I'm here is because I'm currently running an organization called Better Days 2020. Uh, Better Days 2020 is a statewide and nation cel nationwide celebration of the fact that Utah was the first place where women voted in the entire United States. 
Um, and as Heather mentioned, uh, our history for the end of the 19th century here in Utah was utterly remarkable. Um, the Better Days 2020 is also celebrating the, the centennial of the 19th Amendment nationwide. So women in Utah voted 50 years before uh, the, the nationwide amendment. And during those 50 years, as Heather mentioned, I mean, the arts community was started here. The, the, the medical community was started here by women. Um, the political, we were the first state to have a female elected state senator. We were the first, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Alice Merrill Horn was a senator. We have, and um, so we, so as part of our, our celebration, we've introduced um, an educational curriculum in the Jordan School District that we hope will go throughout the state. We've added um, sections into the Utah History Textbook published by Gibbs Smith. We've commissioned actually 50 illustrations of these women. In fact, we were releasing Alice Merrill Horn this week by, um, by, by illustrator Brooke Smart. Do you know? I do. Yeah. Um, and they've been received wonderfully well. And so we're trying through public art projects, through legislation. We're, we were the group that just got the Martha Hughes Cannon statue sent to, to Washington, D.C. And we have a license plate, first vote license plate legislation that just got passed as well. So it's been an absolute joy to get to know this vision that, that Heather talked about, that, that these women really embraced that both-and model. Um, and they saw one of their responsibilities as bringing beauty and, and, and a sort of refined culture to this, this desert land. Um, and so, so looking at this, I love what you wrote, Heather, in, in, at, the, at the entrance, because I do see this being a sort of renaissance of that, that same mentality. And I, that's the purpose of Better Days, is to help awaken us to that history um, of what these women did 150 years ago, and to give us permission today to recapture that um, sensibility and that mentality, because we do need permission in the church and in the state um, to 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 embrace that that both and model and to be okay with that. And I, I think it's very exciting that these kinds of things are happening. This is absolutely a, a a turning turning point and a tipping point, I think, for women to come forward and say, "Yes, I am a both and. I am a Mormon woman and an artist." Um, and, and more shows and models like this that we have, that critical mass will, will come to the fore. So. Thank you. And I, I want to pick up and throw this to the audience in a minute um, on this idea of it is in performing arts. I remember early in marriage being asked to take three little children on the road in a trailer for nine months. And my biggest concern committing to that was that I could not take my bread mixer in the trailer. That was the mentality of my creative spot was to be home. But as I've worked with many of you artists, there are still those balancing acts. I think part of the mythology and mythography of Minerva Teichert, uh, the stories of her working at home, her granddaughter actually, uh, her daughter, who was uh, Marion Eastwood, um, Wardle's mother, I asked one time as we were doing a Minerva Tiger exhibition, and I said, how did your mother do this? I have artists coming to me all the time, young women, saying, I really am trying to find a studio place to work. I'm trying to do it when the baby's asleep. I'm trying to make sure that I have all of these other expectations as an LDS woman addressed. And I think that was part of Minerva Tigert lore was that she had done these things, but when I actually talked to her daughter, um, she said, I'll tell you how my mother did it. We were all her slaves. We did all of those things that, you know, yes, the, the gun under the pillow, those kinds of things, but really for her to carve that work time out and do that kind of work really did take some prioritizing, juggling, and other people helping with that responsibility. So I. With these in mind, the kind of many of you that are doing research projects that are really <laughs> advancing the philosophy of women in the arts, how do you address that in your personal lives as artists? How do you find that place of still saying, I'm an LDS woman, I have a certain set of values and expectations, but at the same time, I am a creative, contributing woman how do you work with that in your time creating, in your space with families? What are some of those conflicts, challenges, and wonderful creative moments that arise out of being in that environment? <coughs> this is open to everyone. 
Well, I'm just gonna, I'm kind of relieved to hear that story about Minerva Teichert, right? Because we look at her and, and how prolific she was and, and it's great to hear some of the reality of her experience. So I find that that support from everyone around me is necessary and I'm, I'm grateful for it all the time because I don't think that being, I, I don't think I'd be able to make the work that I make without support from family and, and friends. But also, um, I talked to Rose Dahl about this in depth several years ago. As a new mom, I was stressed to the max. How am I supposed to do this? I know I'm supposed to do this, but how, how does it look from day to day, from, from when the baby wakes up in the morning until, you, until the baby goes to bed at night? How do you do this? And I, I just asked her over and over again the same question. And finally she said, do you know what? I, I just turned it over to the Lord and I'm guided by the Spirit. And so I thought that was really helpful, but then, and then the reality side of it, she said, every three months it changes. <laughs> so she's like, I find something that works and then three months later it's something different. And so that's kind of been helpful to me. Can I just say, I think one thing that, I, that I've really seen in, in working with um, being a professional Mormon woman and working with other professional Mormon women um, is just, and I think it, when you do do something at, at home, such as, you know, uh, um, you know, have an in-home studio, that, that, that point at which you say, this is my career, is a really big step. And it's such an important step, and it's such an, one that I think, um, I, th I think, you know, more women, women should be willing to embrace, um, not just privately, but publicly, right? Because what happens then is people start taking you seriously, and they're like, oh, like, you know, it's okay. It, it, we we need to take the baby for a little while because she has she has a job to do, right? And and when you start putting it in the, those terms of job and career, and I make money doing this. There's such a, you know, we, we just cringe every time we put it in those terms, but they're, they're beautiful terms because they give you permission to do, to be a creator and um, to legitimize what you're doing as real work. And so one of the things that, that I try and do is just, just tell women to just embrace that because there's nothing shameful about that. Absolutely nothing shameful about that. We think it's okay to be a creator, kind of goes back to this double standard. It's okay to have this wonderful talent, but the moment that it turns to, okay, I'm going to provide for my family with this, or at least in part, then it, it gets a little scary. And I just, I, so I think that's probably the next frontier that, that we as Mormon artists, you as, I don't know what I do, but you as Mormon women artists need to, um, need to embrace. And I, and I think that um, as more do that, then we start demanding things of our community around us, you know, whether it's our uh, parents or our spouses or children. And I do not think it is a bad, maybe slaves is not a great thing. But I was dragged around to so much stuff. Enlist into. Yeah, and, and I, I was so proud of my mom, and I loved it. And I just had this remarkable experience because I was dragged around to stuff with her. Um, and do not be ashamed of that. Do not be ashamed of that. I'm dragging my kids up to the state capitol and Well, and I was going to say, whatever. one of my favorite stories about Alice Merrill Horn is she would take paintings in the back of her car, right, all around the various schools, but she didn't, I don't know why she didn't drive, I don't know if, you know, she just didn't like to, or it was difficult, or her eyesight was poor, so she got her 11-year-old son to be the chauffeur, he couldn't reach the pedals, so they, you know, strapped these blocks of wood, so he could, right, I mean, so it was like, it was a family enterprise, right, and, and, and the children, um, I mean, they learned all kinds of important skills out of doing that, and responsibilities and commitments and, and, and so on, right? And, and so, I, yeah, I love that story. And I think, too, for those of you talking about professionalism and the ability that we have to, to nurture patronage in our community. Mm -hmm. I serve on the Temple Art Evaluation Committee, and we know that one of the things is to have our artists in general recognized as professionals, that like any other professional, their work is accepted and validated by those patrons, that they cannot rely totally on the LDS Church for patronage. We have got to be able to reach out and say we have a core of amazing professionals in Utah especially. I get people from all around the country who are astonished at the kind of artistic output we have in the state. 
the number of artists. On my Springville Museum of Art, artist list of living artists, we have a dead Utah artist list, but our living artists is those who declare themselves artists is over 13,000 individuals wow. over the year years that have stated that. So that validation of professionalism, creating clients and patrons who acknowledge that and do not say, as I heard a person say recently, well, this fellow, this man is an artist. He's having to support his family. So we can look at that price that he's asking more than maybe this other one. She is working from home. There was just that dismissiveness about the powerful role that you are assuming when you take on that title of I'm a professional artist. Does that mean you cannot combine? And I, I was so pleased to tell Nylon that her mother, now I'm gonna enjoy that, her mother was my ninth grade music teacher at Churchill Junior High doing the plays and over the years, I celebrated. I was so excited to say, that was my teacher. And to watch her in this professional world, and anytime she would come back to Utah, I made sure that I got to hear her speak because it was such a celebration of moving to that professional level. And I honor all of you for taking that step. It's a little bit frightening, and I hear the stories of, I am supporting my family and I'm helping, I'm contributing to that. And I recalled I was working on Cyrus Dowling's journals and his letter to the First Presidency when he was doing the Angel Moroni was, please, I need you to pay me. I need to, to know that I can support my family and do this, I'm living in Boston, it's expensive. And so I had an almost identical letter from a Utah artist saying, please, I need to get paid. I'm trying to support a family. So those concepts of moving, making that bridge to saying, I'm stepping off and doing this professionally, takes a great deal of courage, takes a great deal of business sense and planning and taking on those responsibilities, but also conceptually, being at that place where you do feel validated, that you know these are important contributions and stand up and glory in that. So I'm going to, uh, is there anybody that else that wants to respond to that? And we'll maybe take another question here. Um, I think what Heather brought up is very interesting. What happened early on in the church where we saw these kinds, of, because the Springville art movement was essentially started by a woman. And I think that there was that space where we talked about beauty. The last half of the 20th century, we were developing this idea of how to cultivate beauty in our lives and the, the preeminence of home. But what do you see is happening? How are your ideas emerging to be able to combine that, to say we've got a history to be proud of, but also now I'm stepping into a very different world as an artist, an artist in Utah, and especially if you are describing yourself as an LDS artist, there are all kinds of, um, connotations connected with that, not just those denotative statements. So how do you deal with that idea of being three, LDS, and primarily a religious artist, but here we're seeing all kinds of spirituality represented, whether it's a doctrinal or a narrative. How do you, in your lives, bridge that as artists, or how do you see that getting from that early history into now actively revisiting those ideas? Do you understand kind of what I'm saying? That there was a gap. There was a, a long gap where Minerva Tiger kind of was the standard barrier bearer. But how do you as artists make that leap into professional, some of the challenges that you've mentioned? How do you ideologically find the strength to state I am an LDS artist doing subject matter that matters to me as a woman? I think I had to come to this place. It took me a long time to get to that place, and I definitely was lucky to have a really supportive spouse who kind of helped push me because he saw, he saw how it fed my soul, really. And so it, I got to this place where I had to admit, no, I actually feel like this is a call. I really feel spiritually prompted and called to do this, and it doesn't make me a selfish, horrible human being to have kids to be at home and to also have this other part of me that is 
painting that is a businesswoman, and yes, it's a it's a business. I grew up with kind of a, a different um, household. My mom was a working mom, and my dad was a stay at home, a work from home dad when I was a teenager. And so having that kind of model was, I think, really impactful for me. It kind of taught me that I could do whatever the heck I wanted, and it was okay. You know, and I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in California, moved to Utah, went to school here. I'm, I'm still here while my husband goes to school. And to be around this community of other women also doing this is so supportive. It really gives you a lot of courage to like find other women doing the same, doing the same thing. Along with some other culture shock, but to be able to navigate that. Right. Anybody else? Yes. I would say that uh, you kind of find the courage almost like weekly, daily, you know? <laughs> You're kind of like, all right, I'm here again, and, and you commit to a schedule, really. I think what Emily was saying earlier, that like it changes, but you commit to it, and and you you just show up every day and and do it, you know? And, and you have your system in place, or whatever that is for you. And that's what, you know, I mean, every day is gonna be hard, you know? Not every day is gonna be the same. You're not always gonna feel inspired. I mean, that's the life of any, any creative. You know, so it's not much different, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say when it, it comes to, you were talking about identifying as an LDS artist, as, you know, all, all these things that you are, this and this and this, that you fit into these different categories. Um, again, Rose Dahl was a huge inspiration to me. Um, early mentor of mine that um, we lived in the same place in Virginia, and I was one of her studio assistants, like, back when I was in high school. <laughs> Um, and I asked her about that, and she graduated VCU and um, uh, is a convert to the church and all that, and how she felt about being an LDS artist and, and addressing LDS themes. And she said she just came to a place where she um, she just was being who she was, basically. That, that, that was part of her, that was what she cared about, and if she was going to dedicate that much of her, her time and herself to it, it was going to be about something that she cared about, you know? Um, and. I think for me, I, I sort of feel the same way that if it's when I'm making work, I'm trying to come from an authentic place of, of what I care about and not necessarily um, compare so much to other people's careers or, or what's on track or, or what uh, what's, you know, the hot thing that's happening. It's more trying to, to tell the stories that are important to you and, um, and just be unabashedly who you are. Thank you. Can I just say, I think when you ask about connecting today with the past and what can we what can we take from their identity of the past, one of the things that always strikes me about um, the the early LDS artists, male and female, is that they really aspired to be technically trained in a world class mm -hmm. at a world class level. And um, I th I think that. Um, one of the great lessons I learned as um, you know, being close to a world-class performer and also as a performer myself, um, I, uh, as a pianist, um, when, when I focused on being emotive and conveying the spirit to my audience, it was almost always a failure. When I focused on my craft and being the best I could be technically, um, that was when people were most moved. And, um, and so that was really a powerful lesson for me. I remember one time my mom and I were at the Washington DC Visitor Center and um, if you've ever been there, you know that the, there's big glass windows and it looks out onto the, the temple and she had to sing for all these ambassadors and dignitaries at this Christmas concert and um, and I remember she she said it, it was you know it was a very moving hymn that were a Christmas carol that she was singing and she said she looked at herself in this glass with the temple out there and she was standing in the arms of the Christus mm -hmm. and she said there was a moment where she just you know almost lost it and what saved her was she just thought about her technique and she just focused on the, the actual, you know, the, the best world-class quality of sound that she could produce. She wasn't, she didn't get swept away in like the, you know, the, the emotion and the emotiveness of the moment. And I think, I think that that taking that away, that 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 having the best 
education and seeking for the actual you know best um, technique in any of our, our artistic endeavors um, will will open doors to our ability to be communicators of the spirit. I think that's a really essential lesson that the early members learned. And I think you know when we start, as I mentioned earlier, dismissing Mozart because he didn't he wasn't a member of the church. You know, that, then we've gotten to that other extreme, and we've just said, all good art is good because it was made with the spirit. No, that's not true either. And we recently lost, I was just going to um, piggyback on that, we recently lost one of our greatest technicians in Utah. Uh, Bill Whitaker passed away a few weeks ago. And it was interesting to me as we took a, an artist and, and those involved picture at the back of the, the cultural hall, how many of the women brought up that he had focused with them? You've got to get the technique. Uh, he came and, and juried our salon a couple of years ago, and as he would go through, and he primarily did figurative work, but as he would go through his, his darling, he called them his children, his art babies, he would go through, even though they were doing something more contemporary, abstract, he was still, but look at the technique. Even if she's doing, we were standing in front of one of uh, Leslie Duke's pieces that had won an award. He said, this is not specifically what I taught her, but that technique, her ability to get the paint on there, even he was just going over the canvas. He's saying, this is what makes this a fine work, is that she has developed the technique. She's not passing it off to I'm either a woman or I've got the spirit, but she was working as a technician. And I really appreciate it. Did did any of you get a chance to work with Bill? But you probably and you did. We we served together. Uh, I that was the most incredible thing. He was not going to give anyone a pass just because they had the conceptual background. It was going to have to be both the technique and their ability to take those things they'd internalized and conceptually developed. So that would be my best statement to you is exactly what you just said, that I'm seeing the difference between those who come in and say, I was moved to do this, and those who say, I worked on my techniques. So when all else became available and through the promptings of the Spirit, I was able to use that technique. I do not have that technique. There are a lot of times that I thought, I wish I could express something, but I have not put in those as John Lennon and the idea of that what 10,000 hours doing it. I have not put that in, so that is not my area of expertise, but I think it's really important from your perspectives to be able to say that from Bill, that concurring with what you just said, performing arts, visual arts are no different. It does not take just putting the paint on there. It's how you're going to be able to do that. Well, I, I've thought a lot about 100 years ago, what were the conditions that sort of enabled this versus now, right? And I mean, for some of them, many of the women were single, right, who were doing or this. Polygamous. Or polygamous. Or polygamous and had, yeah, kind of different. And, and Alice Merrill Horn was a woman of means, so was able to have a lot of hired help, right, to, you know, to, to have, have it all car. and have the car, <laughs> yeah. right, so she could motor, yeah. motor around the Wasatch Front. Uh, but nonetheless, and you have to acknowledge those, and those are real, right? Those are real advantages and privileges and, and, and different kinds of responsibilities. There was the development of a community, and these women, they formed art clubs, they passed legislation, they did stuff like this. I mean, when I saw this, you know, it was the, the hundred years ago, not all of the women that we're showing in some of these were, were LDS, right? Some of them were from different denominations or, or, or whatever, but they built this community and they helped each other get commissions and they helped each other on various projects. And and I'm seeing the community building that's happening. And I think I think social media has helped a lot. I, I don't know if, if, if artists would agree with you know, bringing, you're not alone in isolation at your kitchen table making your stuff, right? You can all of a sudden be connected. But it got me to thinking, um, I don't work very well from home. I mean, I just never have. There's something about, for me, I write better in my office. I mean, a lot of times I am writing on my couch at midnight, but um, you know, kind of under the deadlines. But um, for me, I need to have a room of my own that is elsewhere. So uh, the Provo Arts, are any of you in Provo? Because I need somebody else to take up this, you know, 
this project as I'm, as I'm leaving, but um, we, we reinstituted the Provo Arts Council about a year ago and we're working on some grant projects, but my platform, if you will, was to create a space where artists, but of course I'm thinking primarily women, can go and bring their children and it's like a community workspace, right? And there's this, and, and, and you have your room of your own, but then the children are playing and you can do work share or, or, or whatever. And I said that the, the, the most underutilized talent, right, that we have and, and, and the ones that are being underrepresented and so on are our women, right? And for some of them working at the kitchen table works right, or in the middle of the night, and for others, in order to you know, feel that professionalization or that community or whatever, they need to go elsewhere and be with people, right, and, and, and the synergy of ideas and so on. So, I mean, I, so I, I'm excited about the community building, and I think we need to do more kind of structurally and institutionally to create those bonds too, right, as we saw the women doing 100 years and ago. I, and I would add to that, I mean, I couldn't agree more on it. I think one of the things that we're trying to get through uh, with Better Days 2020 is that the women did all of this stuff, you know, in the artistic world and political world, medical right. world, with, because of the support of their community. Yeah. I think a lot of yeah. Mormon women today feel like they're doing it in spite right. of their community. Yeah, I would agree. And um, so we are studying, again, politically, but, you know, the women of, of Utah had to be granted the right to vote by men. So in the Constitutional Convention that was convened in, in 1895 when, when the Utah delegates and legislature were, were writing up the Constitution and deciding that women's suffrage was going to be included into it, there were only men who were writing that and voting on that Constitution. So the women relied on the women on the men to vote for them uh, to, be, to be added into it. And there are some statements from that Constitutional Convention that are absolutely incredible. For instance, uh, Franklin S. Richards said that the work that the Utahns had done for um, in women's advocacy was going to be the shining star to its sister states and was going to beckon other states forward to the future of religious and civil liberties. I mean, unbelievable. Joseph F. Smith said this was the opportunity for women to cast off the shackles of their imprisonment in which they often glorify. Um, and um, just, I mean, these statements just sound so progressive even today, but those were those were the, the church leaders at the time, um, and they were they they just took such great pride in Utah being at the forefront of women's advocacy, and so so to get to get men back into that conversation, to get men supporting um, this that community, uh, I think is is another thing that we can take from the past. And I think uh, we at this moment want to celebrate what you have created as a community here. I think that is very supportive of this idea that you are greater together. And as I watch, I'm serving on several state boards, church boards, and I am so impressed with the women that are stepping forward and the men that are joining with them to build total community. Because around here, that is greatly needed. And so what you have done and created here from the earliest conversations I was part of to actually sitting here talking about your work, you are to be commended for yeah. taking that leap. Can we do this? Time-wise, yeah. <laughs> uh, how are we doing? Micah, you just came in. Do you want to say anything, uh, add to this conversation? You've missed part of it. Shame on you, but we know you have other, other responsibilities. <laughs> and it wasn't as cool as this. Oh, there we go. I don't know why I made that decision. I must have been brainwashed. <laughs> um, you know, other than it's just been, I, I will say this, that um, when, they, when, when they originally came to Design Art Society with this idea, um, it, was, it was fully formed. Yeah, and we've, we've done very little other than facilitate the, the space for it. And we have benefited way more than they, from them than they have from us. We have had, this is our third event that we, we've sponsored. And the opening night, I don't know who was here or if you were able to actually see any art, <laughs> but there was a line going from up these stairs and down the other that was shuffling by all night. And it has been, it's been amazing. It, and, and I will say this, at the art historian part, you can't like not make connections, right? But I was, I was talking with a group of, of uh, scholars the other day from the Smithsonian and they were talking about Rosa Bonheur's visit in 1893 to the Columbian Exhibition in 
in, uh, in, in Chicago. Where it took place. Chicago? St. Louis. Chicago. 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 <laughs> and, and there was, at that moment, a similar feeling, right? When suffrage was on the ascendancy as a discussion, they had an entire pavilion dedicated just to women, and they brought out Rosa Bonheur. Why? Because she was the first woman ever to win in a gold medal at the Paris Salon, the most prestigious contest in the world. And she came out, and Tiger talked about that. You know, the women, and I Huntington, the sculptor, talked about it all the rest of her life, they had seen it. And, and I look around, and, and it feels like another moment to me. It feels like this could, we could do this every six months. And we would, we would barely scratch the surface of the talent of the artists who are out here. And the most of the conversations I'm having with collectors are, how come I never heard of these people before? And most of the art conversations I'm having with non-collectors is, I know someone who should be in the next show. It's really, I've, I've got a notebook full, so when you're ready to organize the next one, I'll pass on the next. Kind of, uh, and I, I would like to invite these two to make a closing statement, but I want to make a comment. When I was doing some research at the LDH Church, I was looking, I believe, at the juvenile instructor about the Columbian, the, the exposition in Chicago. And at that time, there was a statement to the young women of the church specifically to not go to that place. It was a place of licentiousness and concern that they needed to save their dollars for building the LDS temple, which of course the Salt Lake Temple opened at that same time. But I am so grateful that we did have other voices that were encouraging that risk taking and that supremely divine, I believe, expression of personal devotion. I, I think that's important to maintain that it doesn't have to be the temple or the exposition, that you are able to work this. You've got the knowledge, the background, you've got a history to support it, and you've also got a great future. As Micah said, we would love to keep seeing these, that you self-critique and that together you bring those conversations, you bring those who can help you look at the past, who can help you understand technique as well as history, that you can continue to move forward in that direction with that confidence and knowledge that you are professionals, you are also women of spirit and women of conviction. So I'm going to invite Heather and Nyland to, to kind of sure. say your your final, final yes, closing statement. It sounds closing like statement, we're <laughs> but also I think acknowledging what this yeah. has accomplished. Yeah. No, it's. There's, I can't remember or recall who said it or the specific year. It was sometime in the 1920s, and it was in one of the church publications, so either the Relief Society magazine. I actually think it was the Young Women's Journal because it was an, an essay about um, kind of the symbolism of the new Mormon art that women were going to create, right? And it was this incredibly hopeful and um, sincere belief that women would create this iconography or the symbolism for Mormon art, just like the Catholic artists of 500 years ago. And they were on the cusp of, of, of doing something that was going to change the history of art, right? And that kind of um, faith and optimism and conviction that, that, was, um, that they were called to do that, I mean, I see um, I mean, you know, part of me goes, gets jaded and just thinks, okay, well, you know, the infrastructure of the Catholic Church was different, and they were decorated, and I think about the cathedrals and so on, we don't have the same sorts of opportunities, but I, I hold to that spirit of there's, there is, um, there's work to be done, right? We've not yet had that renaissance in Mormon art, right? Male or female. Um, and that, you know, we have these leaders from a hundred years ago saying, this is your calling, right? You are to be aesthetic evangelists. You are to develop this. Um, is, is incredibly inspiring, and I, and I feel like I, I see it happening, so. I, I don't, I mean, I don't have much to add. I, I would, um, I think one of the things that we've, um, 
that we take for granted in, in shows like this is the pairing of the words Mormon artists. Mm -hmm. And um, I know I have a couple of friends who take issue with that. They say, I'm an artist who happens to be Mormon. And so I think one thing that, that might, be, might be worth taking away from this evening is um, asking all of ourselves if we are creating or if we're interested in artists who are Mormon, what does that, what does that mean to us? Does it mean that, the, the, that, the, um, that we are supporting a member of our tribe and our community financially and that's it? That, I think that's great. Does it mean that you want to see a Mormon um, you know, narrative iconography um, that, that, that you know, brings the scriptures to life in your home or the temple to life or something like that? I think that's great too. Does it mean that you want to have the assurance that something that you know, is in your home or that you created um, was done by a person with the, with the spirit, um, uh, you know, who said their prayers and read their scriptures this morning. I think that that's great too, but I, I think that it could be any one of those and I don't think it has to be the same thing for everybody. It doesn't have to be all three, but I think the idea that we're, we're fostering women who are artists and who happen to be Mormon um, it's it's time for that. It's absolutely time for that, and I think that that we're over that tipping point, and that this the, the critical mass and the demand for the attention to that particular um, identity is is there. So it's very exciting. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of it. Thank you all for being part of it too. We'd like to thank Rita Wright, Nylan McBain, and Heather Belknap. Uh, for, for joining us for this event, for allowing us to film them for this event, for taking questions, and for being so supportive of the Certain Women Exhibition and Design Art Society in general. Uh, you can find um, images of the works that they're discussing on our website, uh, designartsociety.org slash certainwomen. And again, you can see the show at Heirloom Art and Company in Provo through May 6th. Please uh, remember to subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Share it on social media. Um, help us spread the word. Uh, we'll be back soon in your feed with another interesting interview. Uh, we're really excited for it, so I'm just going to tease it a little now. Um, and we hope you'll join us uh, for that interview and future interviews as we interview more scholars and collectors and artists. Thank you.